May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. First, I want to say thank you for the invitation to come and preach at Trinity. Thank you, Nathan. And it's an honor to be the first speaker in the series that honors our presiding bishop. This Sunday, we celebrate the life, witness, and legacy of Absalom Jones. He was not only the first priest of African descent ordained in the Episcopal Church, he was the first priest of African descent ordained in the United States of America. And so, he is one of my spiritual heroes in the church, not just because he was the first, but because he lived a life that was worthy of that. Absalom Jones was born in the state of Pennsylvania as a slave, where he lived with his family until he was 16 years old. And then his family was sold into slavery to another owner, and he was moved to Pennsylvania where he lived with his master. The story goes that he was a member of a church, St. George's Afri Methodist Episcopal Church with Richard Allen, who later became the founder of the African Methodist AME Church, African Methodist Episcopal Church. And they attended this church for a while and they did a great job of evangelizing, something that we Episcopalians kind of, it's not, it's not one of our things. <laughs> and they did such a great job that the African-American population increased in size that the European-Americans got very uncomfortable with their presence. And this Sunday they gathered for church, sitting in the, the nave, and uh, I guess the people who do these things, sorry ushers, but the ushers came and asked them to move upstairs to the balcony. And they refused and they walked out of the church. Subsequently, the, the congregation leaders, Absalom Jones and Richard Allen, had a challenge because uh, Richard Allen wanted to remain in the Methodist tradition and the congregants wanted to go with the Episcopal Church because they essentially had been thrown out of the Methodist Church. So Richard Allen went the way of the Methodists. Absalom Jones went the way of the Episcopal Church. And they formed the church, was the African Church, where he led for a while. And then they made a petition to the diocese, Episcopal Diocese of Pennsylvania to be, become a member of the diocese. And the diocese agreed under certain conditions. And they wanted Absalom to, to be their, preach, their priest. They could be a part of the diocese, but only if they didn't attend conventions. How that makes you a part of the diocese, I don't know. But that's how the story went. And they became the St. Thomas Church, which still exists in uh, Pennsylvania. 
Absalom Jones and uh, Richard Allen continued to be friends and they continued to work together. They founded the Free African Society as a non-denominational mutual aid society to help that slaves that were newly freed and to help widows and orphans to protect them. They, they remained lifelong friends and they also remained an active part of their community in their work as the church. Now, I happen to, to be of a difference of, of opinion as to the role of church in the community, and I'm sure I'm gonna, I'm gonna shock people to, to, to tell you that, yes, there's always been conflict in the church. Yes, the church has always been political. Okay, nobody's walking out, that's good. <laughs> And so um, the causes that they, that they supported was, of course, the abolition of slavery, free trade, education for the in freed slaves. And so he preached what would be considered today a political sermon and he talked about freedom. Freedom as we understand it and as he understood it in the teachings of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Absalom Jones uh, died in, I can't remember, I can't find my notes, but he died. <laughs> uh, by the way, he, he, uh, here's one of the other things that happened to him. He was ordained a deacon, and he remained a deacon for 10 years before he was finally ordained to the priesthood. Today we celebrate his memory and his legacy in our church. He never lost the conviction that religion and social action go hand in hand. And in 1973, our 64th General Convention added his name to the calendar, what now is holy men, holy women. And so we celebrate him, and I celebrate him today. And I want us to understand what it means to be church, to understand what it means to be church in our, in our community and in our day. It is important, I believe, for the church to be active in the life of the people. And I don't mean just the people who are in the four walls and who attend, but active in the life of the community in which it resides. Often we, the only time we come to church is on Sundays, and then we leave from this place and we go, and the life of the church continues in this place. In my role as missioner for racial reconciliation for the Diocese of Oregon, and, and that is a heavy-weighted title to carry, but I carry it very lightly 
You know why? Because the work of reconciliation is done here, in the community. The work of reconciliation is not an event, it's not a one-time thing, but it's something that has to be done every single day. We make a choice every single day whether we're gonna be reconciled to God and to one another. A passage from 2 Corinthians um, chapter five tells us that therefore knowing the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade people, but we ourselves are well known to God, and I hope that we are also known to our consciences. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast in outward appearance and not in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ urges us on because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we no longer know him in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. Look, new things have come into being. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making this appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, God made one who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. So we are the reconcilers. We are the ones who fill in the breach. We are the ones who are called to make a change, to make a difference in the world. So I want to start this conversation with you this morning with things I think we need to do in order to get to a place of reconciliation. The first thing is truth-telling. Truth-telling about who we are and who we have been as the Episcopal Church in the United States. I, I don't know what the what's in the air, what we've been drinking, or what is happening, but we seem to have an aversion to telling truth. We seem to have embraced alternative facts. We seem to be living in a world that is according to our making, according to how we want things to be, and not according to God's gospel and the teachings of Jesus Christ. The narrative that we hear, I was listening, before I get to, I was listening to a conversation between Brene Brown and Richard Rohr. And one of the things he said that had me howling was that the church seems to have had an aversion to critical thinking. And, and so we want to move away from critical thinking to 
thinking that is in our ways. One of the narratives that I hear a lot in conversations with people, good people like you church folk, I'm tired of hearing about racism. I'm tired of talking about racism. Wait for it. Just how often do you talk about racism? Really? Anybody? How often? Ever? Never? Ever? 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 So you really don't talk about it that often. You know why? Because it's uncomfortable. It's frightening. It's painful. It is all of the above. We don't want to know the truth of our history. I used to live in Florida. Thank goodness I missed that part of the, what's going on now. <laughs> How do we ever deal with a problem if we never acknowledge it? How do we ever resolve a problem if we don't acknowledge it? Racism is a problem. White supremacy is a problem. Misogyny is a problem. Homophobia is a problem. And you know whose problem it is? Ours. And so we continue to try to do the ostrich thing by putting our heads in the sand and, oh, maybe a couple of hundred years we can bring it back up. And when you bring it back up, guess what? The problem is still here. And I believe that God, in his infinite wisdom, or her infinite wisdom, the thing that we need to deal with and to resolve, if we don't do it, it keeps coming back. And it keeps coming back. And it keeps coming back. So church, the problem is not going to go away until we decide that we need to honestly and faithfully and truthfully do it, reconcile it. Will it hurt? Yeah. Will it be painful? Yeah. And it should hurt and it should be painful. It's not like, oh, I, I don't want my children to do this because it's painful. Yeah. Our children deal with it. The indigenous children deal with it. People of color deal with it. We don't have the privilege of walking away from it, and neither should you. It is not our problem alone to solve. It is our problem together that we can try to resolve. So when you, when you choose to take the attitude that I'm not a part of this, you're wrong. Because you are a part of it. You are a big part of it. You are a part of it because you have the privilege of saying that I'm not a part of it. 
You are a part of it because you have the privilege of never having to talk to your son or daughter about how to behave when they come, when they come up against the police. You have the problem to believe that everything the police do is fine and honky-dory. You have the problem to believe that when the police shoot somebody in the back, they must have done something wrong to deserve it. You have the problem when the police is holding somebody by the shirt that it's okay to shoot them. You have the privilege to believe that. You have the privilege to protest one week and make all the donations to Black Lives Matter that you want to make, and then the next week you say, no, that's not, that's not a good group. That's not a good group. They, they're not doing the right thing. That is a privilege. That is a privilege. You don't have to own slaves. Your ancestors never have had to have owned slaves for you to get that privilege. You get that privilege simply because you have less melanin in your skin than I do. And so, when we think about our commitment to be disciples of Jesus Christ, besides our call to be reconcilers, we have our fabulous baptismal covenant, which challenges us. Every time someone is baptized in our congregations, we affirm those vows again. And in the questions four and five, it talks about honoring other people. It talks about recognizing the dignity of other people. It talks about acknowledging, as we had in our gospel reading, that the love of God applies to all of us. And so we, as the church, and I'm talking particularly about the Episcopal Church, man, we have beautiful resolutions. We pass all these things, and yeah, we pat ourselves on the back, yeah, we did a great job, and nothing happens. We come to church every Sunday. We say the confession. And we ask God for forgiveness for not doing the things that we should have done and for doing the things that we shouldn't have done. But what's the difference? What makes the difference for you? What makes you want to be a part of the solution and not to continue to be a part of the problem? What makes you want to say, yes, we need to change? We need to love. What makes the leadership of Trinity be the example that you need to see that allows you to walk in the way of Jesus Christ, to walk in his witness, to walk in the witness of Absalom Jones and other saints that we have in the church that we hold up as people and examples that we want to follow. I do this work because I believe we have the ability to make that change and I have the hope that we have the ability to make that change. Yeah, I know there are people who are in denial. I know that the people who will walk away from this service and think, yeah, she just talked a bunch of stuff, I ain't got time for that. I know there are people who are afraid. 
I know there are people who are angry because we're asking you to do this work. And I know that fear and anger and denial comes from a place of resentment. Why do I have to do this? Because that's what God asks us to do. God asks us to love one another. He didn't say love one another because and all the dot, dot, dots you can put behind that. There are no conditions placed on loving one another, of showing solidarity, of showing empathy for other people. We need to stop believing the narrative that the people who are sleeping in tents, the people who are without jobs, the people who are without homes, that is all their fault. That I've worked all my life and damn it, I deserve what I have and I'm entitled to what I have. Listen, enslaved people work all their lives. What do they have? And please, this other narrative that uh, enslaved people were shiftless and lazy. I don't know how you can be shiftless and lazy and, break and, and build the, the largest economy in the known universe. How does that happen? Stop believing the narratives that deep in your heart you know is not true. It doesn't make you better. Stop believing the narrative. Well, you can believe this narrative about the angry black woman. Black women have a right to be angry. <laughs> but we're not always angry. I'm just saying. And so, ask the people of God and ask the body of Christ. We are called to be inclusive. We are called to be radically welcoming. We are called to be people of hope. We are challenged to accept God's grace that everything we work for we don't deserve. If I was punished for the mistakes I made in my life, the way that we all think people should be punished for mistakes they made in their life that they end up out on the street, we would all be out on the street. So we, we need to, really what I, I need more than anything from you, and I cannot force you to do this, I need you to let God break open your hearts. This work of reconciliation is heart work. It is not intellectual work. It's not the smartest cookie, the whatever. It's, that's not the kind of work. It's the work that frightens us. 
because more than anything else that we hate is vulnerability. It's opening ourselves up to God's love and God's grace and opening ourselves up to the love and grace that we can share together until we come to that place of acknowledging the guy on the street or the woman on the street as our brothers and sisters, the circle continues. I believe history is circular. We find ourselves back in this space all the time and we get shocked and surprised. And listen, not much shocks and surprises me anymore. And that's terrible to say that, but it's true. Until we can get to that space, to that place of acknowledgement that God loves you and me as much as he loves all the people out there that we don't want to look at when we pass by them, that we don't want to acknowledge when we pass on the street, that we don't want to recognize as children of God. God loves them too. In God's economy, they are as valuable and important and beloved as we are. So, I ask us to allow our hearts to be broken open so that the process of healing and reconciliation can begin. We as a country will not move forward until that happens. We as a church will not move forward until that happens. We say every time we get a, a Pew study reports that tells us that the membership in churches are dwindling, and it's not just the Episcopal Church, it's all the, the mainline churches are dwindling, and we bemoan while the young people, why the young people don't want to come to church, and why there, there are more people identifying as none than are identifying as Christians. Why? Because there is a tremendous disconnect between what the gospel of Jesus Christ says and what we do. People leave the church because we ordain gay people. People have left the church because we ordain women. For heaven's sakes, people have left the church because they want to use the 28 prayer book. <laughs> and so what, what, is, what is it about the 28? Jesus Christ didn't use our prayer book, I just want to tell you that. <laughs> and so what is that thing that brings you here? every Sunday or however many Sundays you come. Accept the love of Jesus Christ and the love of your community. And when I say community, I don't just mean people in these four walls. If it is the four walls, then you have to start extending beyond the four walls. And it can't just be 20% of the people doing the work. One of the other things that I hear 
that if I had hair, would make me pull my hair out, <laughs> is that white men are the most discriminated against people in the country. Susan Powder, stop the madness. Really? How, is, how do we get to that place where we can open our mouths to say those words? How are, how are you the most discriminated against? Obviously, you don't know what the, you, the, the, the definition of discrimination is different when we use that. Myths in our church. The Episcopal Church. Well, we're, we're not the most, we're not the whitest congregation. But we are pretty white. And I think the, the quote by Martin Luther King that 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings is the most segregated hour is still pretty much true. I think the mythology, the myth that I somehow, if I move into your neighborhood, I can devalue all your houses and property in your neighborhood. I, I, I wish I had that much power. The myth that indigenous people no longer exist. People are surprised when they see indigenous people. Really? They're still here. Very present. We hold on to these myths because I don't know why. Because I think we are in a place of trying to hold on to what we believe, what has been told us from the time we were born into the river, lived in the river, immersed in the river. We have to leave the river in order to understand that they are myths. We have to leave the river to breathe the air, to clear our minds and clear our hearts. And so my, my parting words for you and my parting prayer for us is that we will allow the love of God to open our hearts, to open our spirits, to open our eyes to see what is really happening in our lives, to see the suffering that is happening in our communities. To see the role that we can play in bringing about the change that we so desperately need. In our past, our gospel from Matthew a few weeks ago, it talks about us being the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We are 
the light of the world that are called to go out into the world to witness to God's truth. And one of my past congregations, uh, members used to tell me, but I'm too old. I've done everything I'm supposed to do in the church. And my response to that was and is, if you're still breathing, God can use you. And God understands what you're capable of doing. God is not gonna ask you to go chop down a tree if you can't hold an ax and you can't. So the thing that God calls you to is the thing that God knows that you can do. So be open to being that light of the world. Being, be open to being the salt that adds flavor, that adds love, that adds hope, that adds encouragement to somebody's life. Be open to the hope that you can bring. Be open to the love that you can bring. Don't close your heart off to the blessing that you can be to somebody else. And it doesn't have to be somebody that you know or somebody that, it can be anybody. That is the majesty and beauty of the teachings of Jesus Christ. We are witnesses. We are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Go out into the world to be that salt and to be that light. Amen.